Greetings, my name is Quinn Weinzaffel, and you're listening to Scholarish, a podcast in which we discuss the road to reason for the next generation. Today, we're going to break from the norm of the past two episodes as I get the honor of interviewing my boss, Dr. John Knox, a church historian, prolific author, career sociologist, and tenured professor. Dr. Knox, welcome, and thank you for taking the time. I know you came into work on kind of the spring break week off. So oh, that's fine. Thank you very much for inviting me here, and, and this is such a fun and uh, stimulating opportunity to talk about some it's very important to me and I think really important in the world today yeah I mean we get to do it every day kind of in class which is super cool to see like kids light up when they first hear about it so basically as this kind of has been going it's a discussion but being as I'm by far the younger of this it's going to be more of an interview uh, especially with someone of your you know career and stature so at apparently great age thank you <laughs> I, didn't, I wasn't going to go there but <laughs> got a young soul you know? there you go so similar to the past two episodes uh, our job today is to present the field that many might not be considered important the goal is to discuss a uh, give the listener a rudimentary understanding of the job of a sociologist, and B, understand how the field of sociology impacts and describes our lives. The topic today should take about the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee, so we hope that everyone listening finds the discussion as refreshing and enlightening as we often do in the office and in class. It's almost as if they get a a free lecture from a tenured professor. Um, And I think the best way to start this is to say that when I first heard of the field of sociology I was only in um, my last year of undergrad I had six hours to fill had to pass some classes and you had the unfortunate pleasure of dealing with me every single day uh, as I took both your intro and your social problems class and I thought I might learn something new but I still remember the day where you handed me your dissertation and uh, in a book and you signed it uh, your sacro states which we're going to talk uh, quite at length that later and uh, the rest has been history ever since then and it's been really cool to kind of work and learn and, and hear kind of a very, very different perspective than what the media and other professors are saying. Yeah, definitely. The, the media today is very one-sided, very, very uh, myopic when it comes to how they um, kind of view and analyze and interpret, you know, social interactions. And that's basically what sociology is all about. It's about how people interact with each other, both in private and the public sphere. So, um, and it's, you know, it's all-encompassing too. So it's just about everything you do in life. Yeah, I've, I've had the joy of being able to teach Bible, history, and sociology, and I think all three of those fields actually are the, are the ones that just, they're just, they, you know, cover everything in life. And the more you know about each one, the, the, the better is, you know, your life could be, or at least the more you can understand. So sociology is that way. Uh, we'll talk about it later, but, you know, the big three, you know, uh, perspectives that, that uh, scholars and, and other experts lean upon are uh, functionalism, which is how we live together in harmony, conflict theory which is actually uh, you're battling for resources okay whether it's real or perceived and then symbolic interaction which is it's one of the fun, you know more fun aspects of sociology is just what does this mean so you know it's like having like a um, you know in, in 2007 2008 when the uh, iPhones came out I was like I got the very first one and it was the most exciting thing in the world <laughs> to get now you know my son who's 18 he's decided he had to have an Android because it was just so <laughs> boring to have uh, an iPhone. In fact, that's only for old people. It's like Facebook is only for old people, <laughs> et cetera. So, um, you know, that's kind of what, what I, we do on a weekly on a, a weekly basis you know, in class. And then, of course, uh, in li- online, it's, it's hard not to actually think 
mm-hmm. sociology or theology or historically, but it can be kind of annoying too. But mm-hmm. uh, I, not just for myself, but I annoy other people too. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, being a Christian sociologist, it's kind of our our job <coughs> to like offend everyone in a way. Like, this the first thing we have to come to terms with is that someone is going to be mad at you, regardless of the side of the aisle we're on. Yeah, and I don't think that's anything that's novel to to us today. It's been going on since you know anyone has tried to speak truth. But uh, in fact, I titled I, I wrote a. Um, intro to sociology textbook and I entitled it sociology is rude mm-hmm. because we ask these questions that people don't want to ha- you know be asked or they don't even want to hear the answers to and uh, the motto and and uh, you'll hear it you know throughout my courses all the time is be uh, be biblical be evidential and be kind mm-hmm. and that's what I'm trying to do as a Christian sociologist mm-hmm. um, and it's that to me is the most uh, productive functional um, honestly Christ-like way to be yeah. Um, in, in life is just, you know, to help understand each other and then to help each other's lives be better. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the functionalism, you know, motif. So that be biblical, be evidential, be kind is built upon years and years of work and writings. But what got you in originally? Like what said, oh, yeah, I'll study sociology. Like um, when uh, I was doing seminary back in 2000 and, to th- and I, you know, I took several classes, all, you know, Bible and church history and philosophy, et cetera. But one of the classes we took was on um, American church history, and in it, uh, the professor uh, brought us a book called The Churching of America by two sociologists named Finke and Stark. Great book. Uh, And in the book, the two sociologists theorized that where you have open religious markets, religious bodies flourish. Well, the problem I saw with with that was I lived in Oregon, and we were like one of the least churched states in the union. Mm-hmm. And so and there was no um, state church. There's no mandates for anybody to attend or not attend. So according to Finke and Stark's theory, uh, you know, we should be you know, have churches in every corner. Um, and that, was, that wasn't going on. So, um, and I, I thought deeply and kind of like considered the, you know, cultural milieu that was surrounding us. And it just seemed to me that, what was happening uh, more so was that uh, radical individualism was kind of taken over and people were, uh, you know, exercising their religious rights and freedoms and proclivities in any way they wanted to and um, outside regular church domain like authorities. Mm-hmm. And that's the big thing. So, and I, and I just, that really intrigued me. And, and um, I had another, uh, there's a professor there, another church professor, uh, church history professor, and she introduced me to her PhD supervisor who was uh, Dr. Ben Dandelion, uh, who was a sociologist out of England, and he, he worked at the University of Birmingham, and so we had a good conversation, and then that took me over there, and um, honestly, the first two years of my PhD dissertation uh, was kind of frustrating, because I was trying to find that focus, and I was talking mm-hmm. about growth and decline. And uh, it just, it, it, it was kind of boring, honestly, what, what I was coming up with. And I could tell he was frustrated and I was frustrated. And then very interestingly, or perhaps providentially, my computer, one night my cu- computer uh, decided to take a, um, mm, uh, a a fall and I woke up to it grinding coffee in the middle of the night. I was like, that's the stuff. And I lost two weeks worth of work that I had saved on my, my hard drive. So I had to send it, you know, my, my computer away. And during those, uh, it was going to take two weeks to fix it. I really contemplated what I wanted to do with my with my PhD studies. And a new uh, book had just come out called The Spiritual Revolution by Linda Woodhead and, and Paul Helas. And it was saying that, that uh, people were abandoning mainstream Christianity for New Age. Mm-hmm. And coming from the Pacific Northwest, mm-hmm. New Age is definitely a component there, probably maybe perhaps larger, definitely in the, in the Bible Belt. 
Um, but I thought it'd be really good to replicate their study in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. I took I took their survey questions. I uh, Americanized them. I fixed the problems of their survey that people had noted before, so I didn't have those same issues. And then I found a city in Oregon that really matched the city that they had studied. So their city was Kindle, England. My study was uh, McMinnville, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And it and um, I went and you know with myself and the help of a few other students, uh, we mapped the congregational domain mm-hmm. and then we uh, I distributed surveys uh, to you know the different you know churches that were willing to help me and then you know we retrieved the data we plugged the data into the statistical package for social scientists and then I saw it's was, it was one of those things you uh, to be a scholar to be intellectually honest you could have ideas mm-hmm. but you have to have them backed up with proof yeah and then you have to be willing to adjust Mm-hmm. Your theory, if it does, if it's not backed up, it's not an emotional thing. It's not an egocentric thing. It's an evidential thing. And fortunately for me, I was just so pleased that the data that came in backed up my assertion that uh, people in the Pacific Northwest, at, at least, uh, were turning to be, you know, into radical individualists, mm-hmm. and they with much disdain for um, church institutions and uh, church authority over them. And so that, that kind of got me there. And I've, of course I finished my PhD and got the book published. And since then I've published, I think I'm working on my 10th book right now. So that's I've been, been busy. Yeah, that's a lot of writing. And thus your, your dissertation on sacroegoism was born in the birth of kind of the sacro states. Right, it's kind of a, kind of a you know, funny words. It's always, you're always trying to find uh, some aphorism that actually like kind of like people ooh that sounds really yeah. good so and like the, you know the other ones that you you may or may not have heard of they said there's one called fuzzy fidelity ooh I haven't heard that one fuzzy fidelity yeah where it's just like uh, or the nuns mm-hmm. N-O-N-E-S the nuns uh-huh. so I was talking to my um, my supervisor and we're talking about it. he goes what are you going to call your theory and I go well this really deals with pico- people's egos and I'm not, and I, it's not necessarily a, a pejorative or negative thing. It's just you know people have their beliefs and they and they have their their different identities. But I go, it was the it was the sacred ego, mm-hmm. and but that had already been used. So I said, you know what, I, I, would, I would call it sacro egoism because it's their ego is above everything else. And I remember he he went. Ooh, that's good. That rolls off the tongue. It still sounds very snooty. You know, if I talk to people, I just say radical individualism. Uh, but it definitely <clears throat> fits it. The other thing is, when I did my study of McMinnville, I saw the data, and I saw the patterns that the data uh, indicated. Um, the, um, the I saw four camps, basically, of people's responses. So the sacro-egoists are the radical individualists. Mm-hmm. They're the ones where they are the highest authority, spiritual authority in their lives. Mm-hmm. The sacro-communalists are the ones who are um, more about a lay person uh, sort of approach to religion. It's uh, no, you know, stark doctrines. It's kind of like what is the consensus, and, and it's very emotional most of the time. It's very affable. Um, yeah, something you might encounter if you talk, you're talking about theology in a bar or out in the mountains or something. That with some a group of friends. Um, Sacrotheists are the smallest group, and they're the ones who get, you know, they feel like they get their direction you know from god himself personally and it, that's why it's very dramatic mm-hmm. um like what one time i asked you know this lady I was interviewing her and i said have you ever had a theophany and she goes oh yes she goes well it was from an angel i go oh do tell do tell and she goes well an angel was there when it was great because he was able to translate what the sasquatch was saying to me and i'm like oh um 
could you expand upon that? So she had been having conversations apparently with a Bigfoot, and the angel showed up in order to you know tell her what to say. And, and I, I remember following it up with, you know, carefully and respectfully, I said, uh, can I just have to ask this question? Were drugs involved? And she said, well, yes. I was taking <laughs> mushrooms, so you have that too. But still, she felt it was a direct connection. And I said, do you think that it might have been more about the drugs than actually God talking? And she said, no, it was God talking directly to me. So that's a sacrotheism. And the last one is sacroclericalism. And sacroclericalism is sort of an institutional approach. And that's sort of the old standard one that's been in, in, in place for 2,000 years, basically. And you'll see it in auspices such as like the Mormon Church or the mm -hmm. Catholic Church. Uh, it used to be the Southern Baptist Church, even though they've changed. Mm -hmm. So, um, but it's definitely that kind of like hierarchy of spiritual power starting, you know, with the pastor or the church leader and, and working its way downward. So, yeah. So that was like your, your intro thesis, and we're definitely going to want to dive into those sacro states in, in just a moment. But moving through your professional career, like, what does a sociologist do? <laughs> like, what would you say, like, you perform that gives value to others? Um, I, I think to get along with people, the, the starting point has to be to understand them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what they're doing and why they're doing it. I think there's too much in America, we have these knee-jerk reactionary sort of like you know ways that we've developed over the over the past 20 years i would say at least it, i'm sure it's been before before that too but definitely now so as a sociologist i try to explain so like someone who's a conflict theorist mm -hmm. um they're not you know innately evil or anything like that it's just that perhaps they grew up in an environment where they struggle to to find you know jobs or, or housing or or education and they see other people who get it very easily without the same roadblock. So to kind of explain that, you know, their 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 anger, their, their resentment is not just, you know, some figment of their imagination that actually there might be something that actually, you know, affected them negatively. Yeah. Um, likewise, um, on a more positive end too, you'll see like healthy people uh, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, they'll come from a family that has a strong pattern of support, mm -hmm. understanding. So, so as a sociologist, I'm trying to help people see that. Uh, and, and I want them to be, you know, um, introspective mm -hmm. to think about themselves too. And I think that's kind of what's missing in American sociology right now. It's all about what other people are doing to you mm -hmm. and not what you're doing to other people. Mm. And so um, that's the other thing too, is to kind of know, you know, to, to know thyself. Mm -hmm. You have that too. But also, I also always point out in class, we talk about the great commandment, you know, and yeah. that is to love the Lord thy God, love my heart, soul, mind, strength, etc., and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's actually a great definition of Christian sociology. Mm -hmm. It's to kind of understand the parameters and also the people that are mm -hmm. involved. And so that's that's kind of what I'm trying to do. And not that you have to agree with each other, because you don't. I mean, America used to be pretty pluralistic, pleasantly pluralistic, as I was call it, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I have many friends on, on both sides of the aisle, and I love them, and you know, I respect them. I don't have to always agree with them. Yeah. And um, But also just to consider where they're coming from. I have a, a really good friend, he's like one of my best friends, mm -hmm. and he is an agnostic, mm -hmm. if not atheist. But his father, um, is an atheist and, and his father's English and I love his dad his dad's just great we have the best conversation he's a PhD chemist from Oregon State University wow. and um, totally respect him I don't think it's like he I don't think he hates God per se it's just sort of the concept of God too but to kind of understand that that's my buddy you know he was socialized in that household yeah and that's where he came to to come up with his sort of like presuppositions of life and so and I don't you know think he's an evil person i don't I, I again i don't have to agree with him but um i do i do still respect him so yeah 
So I know you talked a little bit about the differences between the social, like sociologists. What would you say, even greater than like a functionalist or a conflict theorist or someone who would support more of the symbolic interactionist perspective, like what makes a good sociologist a good sociologist? Um, I think you need to be intellectually honest. Okay. I mean, honesty is huge. To be able to take in, you know, different possibilities. And that actually, they, they would call it the so sociological imagination. Mm -hmm. To be able to take those in. And right now, that's not rewarded in, in popular society nor in, in academics, mm -hmm. uh, at least at, at too many schools. Um, where, so, uh, and I'm a functionalist. Mm -hmm. That's the one I, I, I think that's the one that actually <laughs> works the best, that's functionalism. Um, conflict theory seems to me to be just a continuance of, of you know, um, coveting and um, resentment and, and conflict. It's just, it, it's not very help, helpful to, to get people out of stuff. Um, so I think honesty is huge to be able to uh, um, hear other people's voices and to consider them fairly and not, not kind of like bi with bias. Um, number two is to be evidential. Mm -hmm. And I think that's huge because we're such an emotional nation right now and the sacro egoism supports that mm -hmm. and not in a good way. It, people go, well, I know that the Bible says X, but I think Y because my Jesus would never blank. They do that and they feel like that's, you know, that's the correct sort of like worldview and it's it's actually it's condemned in the bible but it also is condemned in science that's not what you do mm -hmm. science uh, uh so i said be 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 honest be evidential and just to be scientific mm -hmm. and that's the thing is to know that like even my sacro egoism or the sacro states you know all four of them um for me to be a good social scientist i have to be open to change them if they need to yeah if the evidence did not support them or stop supporting them i need to to, to do that in fact one of the questions that when i was doing my phd viva the the, the oral examination i gave they said so you're saying they said to me and, and mm -hmm. the, my examiner said um that sacro egoism is the way it's always going to be and i go I'm, i did not say that because it is right now mm -hmm. but 50 years ago it was sacro clericalism mm -hmm. you know and, and i go i kind of think it's a, a cyclical thing anyway but if it changes it changes yeah and then um you know, again, that's as a social scientist, I'm like, it's not, it's not necessarily what I want. It's what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and then finally, I would say just uh, for the ethical component of being a sociologist or any social scientist is to do no harm. Mm -hmm. And it's, I have the honor of being able to stand up before the class mm -hmm. and to share my thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not, I'm not a king. You know, and uh, they're not my, my, my subjects. And so, uh, in fact, I need to be careful what I say to them and how I say it and, you know, to, to build them up. And we talk about really contentious trigger warning things in class, oh, as you know. Yeah, all the time. Um, and, I, you know, like you talk about gender, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I always say, like, I mean, we're both made in the image of God, mm -hmm. you know, and we need each other. But we, and differences do not imply uh, inferiority necessary, yeah. you know, necessarily. Um, so I try to do that now. Unfortunately, being an emotional culture right now, people hear what they want to hear, and then you know they sometimes they'll kind of read into what I'm saying or misrepresent me, and I, that happens a lot. So, but my thing is not to be reactionary, just to assume you know they, they mean well, but they're frustrated, etc. So, yeah. I always find that it's so crazy sitting in, in class or or maybe even about to to lead a discussion, and then you know you could be very kind, evidential, 
open-minded, like almost that really healthy classical liberal perspective of I'm going to take in all the information and find the absolute truth. And people get very triggered. <laughs> like almost every time we have our, our uh, section in social problems on race or whether we start talking about conflict theory and intro sociology or even psych of personalities when we start talking about, you know, your personality is not, you know, four letters it's way more complicated than that mm -hmm. and you can watch everyone get very upset in like in their seats and i i think that that's why your <coughs> like the sacro states are becoming even more and more important like if i would if i was to tell someone like why should you learn sociology i think it's really important because it structures the way we think about society because so many people have no idea so to look at someone and say like oh i totally see how you're putting your own thought above that of your family and your peers and even your professors like how many people how many people email us like dr knox you're wrong and you will do this <laughs> <laughs> it, it happens i think there's um again everybody at college today has been socialized in the years before them and they've been socialized that you know mm -hmm. honestly uh, i'll have to say com comparatively and i've got two boys in co and you know, one just finished high school i got one who's in, ju in, in junior high that they they're coddled way more than we were, mm -hmm. and they were uh, like you know like they don't turn in stuff they still get points. Yeah, I'm like how's that possible? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't do that too. Uh, but in class, I think what happens is people honestly, I think any negative responses we get are for people who feel threatened, mm -hmm. and they feel threatened because they've been hurt in the past. Mm -hmm. Like so, and I'm very egalitarian. I really am. I mean, again, I, I, differences don't mean inferiority, as I said before. Um, and there's things that guys can do very well, and most of it's a physical thing too. They have that, and perhaps a logical thing. Um, and, and but women, though, you know, they live longer and they, they have better communication skills, and uh, they and there's a we're both equally intelligent, mm -hmm. but in different ways. And so, like a woman's EQ, emotional quotient, is way higher than guys. Guys are like you know Neanderthals in some ways when it comes to our relationship skills. But women, you know. Um, they did a study, and it's funny because you talk about a trigger warning. There's a University of Pennsylvania study that came out just a couple years ago, and I like talking about it because what they did is they, they got a group of men and women, about the same age, about 30s, and they uh, did blood work on them beforehand and blood work afterward, and they strapped them down to an MRI, and then they charted their brain activity while showing them pictures of controversial, scary things. So like a baby, a toddler with a, a, a pit, pit bull, you know, pouncing on it or something like that and then they you know they said look at that and think about it and when the men and the women thought about it their brain patterns were different and you know and a lot of it had to do with the testosterone level or the estrogen level that they had but what you would have is women predominantly when you know they saw the picture their logical center of their brain turned off and their emotional center turned on mm -hmm. and guys their emotional center turned off and their logic center turned on too mm -hmm. so you have that so that's that's not me doing an opinion yeah that's just scientific evidence that shows that men and women think differently at least they process differently too and um i, I don't think either one is actually bad because you know you need to feel for people mm -hmm. it's a we, we you know we have a relationship with god we have a relationship with each other relationships matter and and you know, treating each other respectfully and with dignity is, is important mm -hmm. but there's also guys who are like how can i rescue the baby that's the way our brain goes too, just like that. Mm -hmm. And um, in some ways, you know, we can compartmentalize, which is is good. Um, my my wife and my child almost died during um, her childbirth mm -hmm. or his childbirth. Um, and I remember thinking, I go, I really, I just want to sit in a corner and like cry. Mm -hmm. But I, I have another son. I was working. Didn't want to lose the house. 
I had to make money to pay for the hospitalization, all that sort of stuff too. So I said, I'm just going to compartmentalize it and I'll, I'll cry later. And I, and I did, of course, once I got out. Um, but that's something that, you know, as some people might say is like a, a weakness, but it's also a strength too, for sure. And, mm-hmm. um, but again, you have to kind of have both yeah. really in, in balance. And, and I don't, I, there's no, I mean, intellectually, men and women are about the same smart. They really are. So yeah. you have that too, but we just have different ways of processing stuff and, um, it's almost like God made us for each other or something like that, you know? <laughs> Bizarre or, how all that works out, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, life, I think the feminists, the kind of arch feminists, they think, you know, life without men would be great. But I go, it's, you know, they really are disrespectful to the gifts that men bring to society. Mm-hmm. And, and same thing happened Victorian era. You know, the, they were really you know, derogatory toward women and, you know, try to put them in a place. And uh, we have a, one of the biggest questions we ask, I think if you remember, I always start out my class just, and it's a purely scientific question. Mm-hmm. I go, just, I go, pros and cons are just like, you know, what's, what's the reality going here? I said, should women be firefighters? Mm-hmm. What are the pros? What are the cons? Not can, should. Should, yeah. You know, or, 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 you know, or, or, and what do you need to be a firefighter? Mm-hmm. You know, and I go, so, you know, so maybe one column says, what do you need to be a firefighter? You know, they write down the list, you put men and women, and then you kind of do this. So I'm like, um, that's just a, a question you ask. And, you know, some people go, oh, you shouldn't even ask the question. And that is so anti-scientific political, it makes me want to barf. Yeah, it's just it's it's the exact opposite of the way you sh- it, it should be. Um, and if I had, you know, I was saying classical, if I had a daughter, I'd want her to be able to do whatever she wanted to do. Mm-hmm. That's safe for her mm-hmm. and other people. And that's it. So but um, and I would I mean, personally, I think women should be able to apply for, you know, firefighter positions. I have no problem with that, too. But they also have to pass the test. Mm-hmm. And you don't lower the, the test, you know, requirements to get them in just because they're a woman. Yeah. And the same thing would be true for men. Exactly. Yeah. So that, But that's scientific, though. So what would you say is, like, the impact of that kind of thinking if we if, – if the person who's listening – because our, our predominant audience is people more around my age, the people who we kind of sit with. Like, mm-hmm. how does that impact them going forth in their lives? Like, is that like, don't be triggered? <laughs> well, I would hope so. I think, you know, there's a maturity in there too, where, you know, I, I mean, we all have, we all have knee jerk responses. We all have a human re- response. That's, and that's, you're right. And everything like that. You just don't want to, you know, live as a child. You want to live as an adult mm-hmm. and um, make your decisions based on, <coughs> excuse me, important stuff and not just your, like, you know, your, your neuroses or something like that. So, um, and I think again, um, so my response is like, you say, like, uh, if you go, um, if someone says there's nothing that men can do that women cannot do as well yeah and my emotional response to that or my, my at least my my first response is uh, no <laughs> you know and i get this and i go and they go but i've kind of trained myself to say one not to say no and two to say well what, what are you basing that upon yeah because um and i would say scientifically that's not true mm-hmm. um because Anything women can do, men can do also. Well, women live a lot longer than men. Men can't apparently do that. <laughs> you, you know, just, I mean, we, we, we uh, you know, we're stronger and we have more testosterone, we have more strength. But we kind of flame out about 10 years before they normally do. Mm-hmm. So that's it. And then, um, again, just the, other, the opposite of that, too, is like men are like 200% stronger than women. Mm-hmm. And, oh, here's the other thing, too. People love in post-modernity and, and sacrificed egoism to point to the exception yeah, and then try to make it the norm. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my favorite lines from an old Clint Eastwood movie is he says, "Man's got to know his limitations," mm-hmm. and that's the thing. And you know, it's okay to have a limitation. Zachary mm-hmm. was hate it. Mm-hmm. In fact, in fact, you say you know you like the different be biblical, be evidential, be kind for its structure. 
they don't want structure yeah because that limits their so their social avenues and they want to be able to do it in fact i was talking to one guy in my um study and i said oh well, you kind of sound like a sacro is it because hey do not put me in a box yeah they hate everyone hates being labeled <clears throat> yeah which is funny because I, I i don't have a problem with being labels but the funny thing is i said to him i said okay i'll put you down in the in the group of people who don't like being put in a box he goes thanks i like that you know and i'm like <laughs> you know but they don't like it and it's like it's, non-denominational churches yeah <laughs> could I, you I pick mean, a doctrinal statement please you know? yeah and I, th I think i mean we don't want to we don't want to artificially you know uh, you know exclude people if, if possible and uh, but you know it it, it does happen. I mean, it's like I go. I'm I'm six foot one. Mm -hmm. um, should I try out for MB, for the NBA? Well, one I'm fifty three, so that's the old person box. <laughs> six foot one is tall, but it's not tall enough to be in the NBA, in my opinion. I mean, I've played I've played basketball with guys who are like six foot four, six foot five, and it's not fun. Yeah, you know. So I mean, uh, should I be able to try out? Sure, but. Um, it's okay if I'm that. Um, plus, I'm white, and white guys can't jump, quote unquote. You know, so you've got that, you know, sort of stereotype. So, but again, I would just the, the point out the exception is not the norm. And that's a logical fallacy to. Uh, oh, to, oh they hate the... logic. Oh God, they <laughs> hate logic. The fallacies run rampant. That's the stuff we kind of deal with in class a lot of times too, yeah. because they'll they'll do a hasty generalization, mm -hmm. or they'll do some a false equivalency, or uh, tu quo which is true for them is true for me. You know, they they do all the stuff, and they don't see themselves do it. So, my ultimate goal is for them to have clear perspective, mm -hmm. not to agree with me. They do not have to agree with me to get an A. Yeah, they have to show me they understand, but they don't have to come to my conclusion. I don't ever do that politically, socially. So. But um, I do want them to be um, honest about it and mm -hmm. to know the limitations. So, so functionalism is the, what I what I kind of like advocate for. But if you if there's dysfunction in a society and you do nothing about it, then your functionalism has failed. And that has happened in America too much. Mm -hmm. the, the stuff with the the, the uh, African Americans or the the slaves before, that's garbage. That should never have happened. That's so dysfunctional. You have that too. Um, being disrespectful, dismissive to women unfairly. Mm -hmm. You know, that should never have happened. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, and like, they're not second-class citizens. And and actually, I would say the opposite has happened right now. The pendulum has swung, and now men are the ones who are the troglodytes, mm -hmm. you know, and um, presume that the, the, the Me Too movement mm -hmm. were presumed all to be rapists and, like, you know, sexual predators, which is such garbage. Mm -hmm. Because you know and I know, if I, I mean, those type of men, and they're few, the predators, if I found them doing something nefarious, there would be a consequence that they yeah. would not like, you know, because that's not a good person, too. But, um, you know, you've got to be honest about it, too, and just um, care for care for one another, too. Uh, I think the most important thing that the sacro-egoists have the hardest time doing, though, is being humble, hmm. right? And considering the other person better than themselves. Uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with a mis-socialization toward narcissism and neuroses. Mm -hmm. They're very, the strongest person is the one who needs the littlest stuff to be happy. Yeah. And we're not we're not taught that. So like, I mean, I have I have so many bosses, you have no idea. <laughs> and I am so happy they're my bosses and I don't have to do that stuff. They're perfectly I mean, Dr. Knapp is the the one we have here at School Behavior Science. I love the guy. He's awesome. And and uh, Kevin Connors my chair. Love him. He's like, Esther Warren's the uh, general ed dean. Fantastic. Um I just and I don't I don't if they tell me to do something, I do it. I'm pretty sure I have more degrees than all of them, mm -hmm. but that doesn't matter. They're my boss, and I'm there. That's their position. I'm gonna do my best to serve them well. Mm. You know, but um, I don't have to always agree with them. 
but I'm going to do what they want me to do. If so. only people my age would adopt the same attitude. Okay, psychologically, it's a little different. So, I, I mean, I one of the joys of being able to teach for so long, um, I've taught, I've taught, yeah, college. I taught all the millennials, so I was two thousand two all the way through to the, you know today. So I taught all the millennials, too. Um, it's hard to go to school. It's hard to become an adult. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to form you know long term intimate intimate relationships with people, and that's the stuff old people tend to forget. Hmm. They forget what it feels like to be where I got a son. He's he's starting school this term, eighteen, and I I, rem- I totally remember what that felt like to mm-hmm. go. It was such a good feeling. I'm a man finally. You know. Mm-hmm. You know, even though, you know, if you make mistakes, oh, and the other thing is, it's like it, uh, the adults forget that it's okay for the kids to make mistakes because mm-hmm. that's how we learn. We, I still make mistakes and that's how, that's how you learn. Um, and we have this sort of, you know, um, in a, you know, we, we want them to do well and be healthy, but I think perhaps our standards are like a little, a little too high or a little bit maybe too, um, you know, austere for, for some things. I mean, um, if Jacob, my son, my oldest son did not make mistakes, that would be really weird. Yeah, you know, and I also don't want to. I also don't want to helicopter him. Mm-hmm. You know, I want him to be autonomous and, and make his own decisions. I think we've you know, he's lived with us for you know eighteen years, so he's should have that going on too. But um, but the, the humility, like I said, it's one of the biggest things that the sacro egos have problems with. And um, like I don't I don't debate women who've been pregnant about how pregnancy feels. Yeah, <laughs> or birthing. Yeah. You know what? Why would I, 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 I? Why would I do that? That would be absurd. Mm-hmm. You know. And then, um, you know, guys and like strength or <laughs> sex drive or something like that. Women think they know. I go. You don't really. You, the, you know, the the testosterone effect is just so, you know, you know, huge that it's it's hard to even like put into words sometimes too. So, but uh, but again, um, we still need each other and we need to be kind to each other. And I think the kindness comes from grace and compassion Mm -hmm. and that I think is really necessary and not just for people your own age Mm -hmm. and not just for the minorities and not just for the people who really like you know financially you know crippled I sense and I could be wrong here you challenge me if you want to that um, young people are very cold-hearted when it comes to older people especially middle-aged people yeah it's just like and they go you're so judgmental and then they do the same thing and they don't they don't consider what it was like and so case in point um, I remember um, my dad. My dad died in 2000. My dad died of liver cancer. Well, he was diagnosed in 1984. Wow. Okay. And then in 1985, he went to Hawaii with my stepmom and didn't take us. Mm-hmm. And I remember. And I remember the time going. Well, I've never been to Hawaii. I want to go to Hawaii. And then, you know, as an 18 year old, I'm like, why? Why can't we go? As a 50 year old, and I actually, you know, as a 30 year old, I figured this out too. I go, well, the poor guy had just got diagnosed with cancer. Mm-hmm. He had to work. He still, even though he's got cancer, he has to work so he doesn't lose the home. He's trying to take care of his wife's feelings, trying to take care of our feelings too. So he needed, you know, a, a, a some sort of like, you know, a rest and sort of like a, a minimal escape just to kind of like not lose his senses. But that's a thing to consider is that young people don't consider how much um, pressure that their parents are feeling or the boss is feeling or something like that. And, and, and they, again, because they're so... Sp- you know self-centeredly focused that they don't focus on other people too and that's the thing so like when people bark at you or something like that you got to consider what's going on in their life yeah and not that it's okay for people to bark at you no no but i'm like saying but you know normally if someone is hostile toward me something has happened to them yeah unless i am overtly being hostile then but i don't do that I don't, you, you, you tell me 
<laughs> Tell me now. No, yeah. like it's it's definitely like when someone overreacts to the situation and they're the ones that raises it. It's not you. You were just the straw that broke the camel's back. So right. Or if I hear, you know, kind of like a, a battle going on between people, I'll say, now wait a minute. Let's mm-hmm. just hear what she has to say. Let's let, hear what mm-hmm. he has to say. Is that? And then of course the question is, is that true or not? Mm-hmm. What's the evidence? So that's the evidential part of it too, and that's the way to do it. You, you can you can confirm this, and, and not only are we in my classes, you also been like my GSA for a term, so so you know um, we set up the um, sort of like the um, class etiquette, mm-hmm. and then that sort of like sets the sort of like the uh, emotional kind of like level for the class. So I say you can't call people names. You can only ask questions. Yeah. Right. But that's the thing you're trying to understand. Well, why would you say that? Hmm. Mm-hmm. And then say, well, I'm not sure. You know, and then I go, you could say, well, I don't quite agree with that. And here's why. And then you explain yourself. And then I go, you don't have to convince anybody of anything. It's not a battle to be won. We're just trying to understand each other. And that's, that's the thing. And then you notice, I mean, I had one student, this was like two years ago, three years ago. She came up to me. She goes, wow, I've never been in a class where we talked about this much controversial material without anybody being triggered. I go, it's, but, but but we're not trying to defeat each other. No, and, and we're not doing conflict theory. No, we're doing yeah. functionalism. We're trying to live in harmony with each other too. And yeah. actually, symbolic interaction is trying to understand what things mean to people. Mm-hmm. So it's stuff that we just take for granted, and they, and they don't. You know, so that's uh, you know that's what we're the ultimate goal. We're just trying to get along. So yeah, I wrote down for for kind of the outline that the the primary axiom axiom of a functionalist is what you've got on your shirt and maybe at some point in the future scholars will be able to have merch that says be biblical be evidential and be kind and that's that's such an important lesson and i feel like you can't have two of the three mm-hmm. like you can't be biblical and be evidential and then beat people over the head with it Right, and you can't just be biblical and be kind, and then just throw logic and reason and evidence out of the window. And you can't be evidential and kind without being biblical. So it's this self-sustaining. You need all three in order to fully love God first, and then love others, as it says in the greatest commandment. Right, and I, I would say somewhat ironically, the, the 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 one tenet that the people have the most problem with is the first one, mm. the be biblical one, because they think it's not kind and productive or anything like that. And I go. It's funny because a lot, most people who, who think that have never read the Bible. It's true, yeah. Or thoroughly. And I'm like, no, it's very, very, um, you know, altruistic and mm-hmm. compassionate. and But it does set standards for getting along. The Ten Commandments is one of the easiest ones to look at. Mm-hmm. So you can remember Israel, the children of, children of Israel, the, the Hebrew children, have come out of Egypt that's polytheistic where they're slaves. Okay? And um, they're given their freedom. And God says, okay, but here's what, okay, you can't do anything you want because anything and everything you want is going to hurt each other. Mm-hmm. But that's America right now. Yeah. Right? And someone's going to get hurt. So, you know, you take ten, ten commandments. First four about the people's relationship with God, and so we'll we can talk about that later. But the bottom six are about the relationship with other people. So, you know, if it's honor your mother and father, if it's like do not steal, um, do not covet, do not bear false witness. Against. I mean, I'm mean, talking about how many of those have been violated in the past year. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then on the news, oh, yeah, you, yeah. Just, you just see it all over. And people don't want the Ten Commandments because that restricts their social avenues. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. And Christianity, that's why the big biblical thing is, um, you know, we're not supposed to use our freedom for for ill will toward people or to, for violence. It's to, it's to point people to God and to re- reflect him. That's the thing. And that's not, you know, when your own God, when you are your own God, 
well, you reflect darkness. Mm-hmm. When you reflect God, you reflect light. And that's the thing. So, and the darkness hates the light. Mm-hmm. Sorry to get so theological on you here, but it's true. So people, well, they don't like being biblical because they want to do what they want to do. And by the way, what got us in trouble to begin with? Doing what we wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. Thinking that we were God, wanting to be God, mm-hmm. and then and then doing what we want to do. And I'm like, it's just so tragic. But I think there's also a huge trust factor that, and I think actually this is, uh, has a lot to do with bearing false witness towards people. That, like you, you're told, don't trust anybody over 30. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, no, I know lots of people over 30 who are quite trustworthy. In fact, most of the people I know over 30 are quite trustworthy. Mm-hmm. But they, well, they restrict our social activities. Like, well, maybe your social activity should be restricted. Yeah. You, you know this, not personally, of course, but just, you know, um, being around people like this too, uh, when it comes to like talking about drugs. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when I start talking about the evils of marijuana, which, by the way, scientifically, it's not a good, you know, drug to put in your system. Mm-hmm. It, it, it causes psychosis. Contrary to pop culture. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, but it's escapism, and they want to be able to escape and so on. But then they, and then they, they turn to mockery, you know, or some sort of, like, irrationality, too. And I'm like, I go, well, as Christian says, be sober-minded. Mm-hmm. That's what you're supposed to do, because then you don't make bad decisions. And also, you're not supposed to depend upon an artificial substance. You're supposed to, you know, lean upon the Lord. Yeah. And if you lean upon the Lord, good things will happen. If you lean upon, you know, mind-altering drugs, is that going to lead to good things? No, it leads to addiction. Mm-hmm. Always. You know what? Yeah. So that's the thing. It's so interesting it, it, uh, to mix the pillars of education in a way. It seems like a good sociologist is the healthiest theologian and psychologist at the same time. Uh, it, you could be if you have the right background, too. And I'll say I have a, I'm have a little bit weird. Well, some people say I'm a lot weird. But I'm a little weird when it comes to my academic background because I have, like, almost six degrees. I'm working on my sixth degree, which is in psychology, master's psychology. But, I mean, I have a, a, a two bachelors, one in English, one in history, a master's in sociology, master's in Christian history and thought, a Ph.D. in sociology. So, so when I see things, um, I see, you know, the overlapping spheres of influence. Some people who only are sociologists, so if you have a bachelor's of sociology and a master's of sociology and a PhD in sociology, that's all you see. Yeah. And and that and then of course it, it, it tends to be the myopic part of it, the kind of narrow mindedness or narrow sidedness of it, lends itself kind of dangerously to kind of like um, um, shadowy corners that they mm-hmm. don't see. So I don't have those shadowy corners as much. Because I see, I my, my the the best example of this is when I went and got my my um, when I finished, I finished a bachelor's degree in English in 2012. So like 20 years after I graduated, just for fun. And I was reading this stuff and I go, oh my gosh, this is such good literature. Mm-hmm. And, but that's because I knew the history and the theology and the sociology of it. Mm. Now, when I, I started taking English classes when I was, you know, earlier than you, you know, when I was 18, 19, I go, I don't know what this means. <laughs> what, is this, what is this, you know? But I had the context. And context is huge. Because context, um, you know, can free you or or lack of context can, can trap you and actually god has got the greatest context of all yeah he understands everything inside and outside of us mm-hmm. there's nothing that is hidden from him he sees everything but we do not have that you know that same sort of like you know resources personal resources we're limited by our perspectives and our experiences so i i was thinking about this even today because i go you know we're talking about um i saw some uh, some video um on facebook and the guy was talking about critical race theory and everything like that and I thought well you know he's in one regard he's right I don't know what it's like to be a black man mm-hmm. but he doesn't know what it's like to be a white man but yet you know 
that doesn't seem to matter, in, at least in this video. I go, but he's a human, mm -hmm. and I'm a human, and he's a man, and I'm a man. We mm -hmm. can trade body parts. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, I know what, and actually, I know what it's like to want. Mm -hmm. We were very poor. My whole family was poor. My dad and my mom, I were from West Virginia. They, you know, they're really poor. Um, and even as personally, I mean, I've had no money, no job. I mean, I know what it's like, you know, so where you, you can't afford to buy a house. I know what that's like. Yeah. Um, where you're living on poverty, Pepsi, you know, and like beans, you know, so I know that too. So, um, so, um, but that being said, I don't actually, you know, I've even had people be racist toward me mm -hmm. and, and sexist toward me. Um, so I do, I do appreciate that, you know, how, how that stings too. But, um, uh, I've been reading uh, Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington. So we talk, we'll talk about, when we do critical race theory in class, we talk about the guys I do him, I talk about W.E. Du Bois. But one of my favorite things about uh, Booker T. Washington, who was a slave, was his functionalist rep uh, approach to living in society. And it was one of the sweetest things I've ever seen. Just Because just, the guy could be so full of, of, of anger and resentment and bitterness for being a slave, unfairly. He's a brilliant man. But um, he says, the you know, the best thing you could do mm -hmm. is to live in ways that help other people yeah and not live in the past with grievances but see that's conflict theory mm -hmm. is the grievances and sometimes you just got to forgive people but also you don't want to bear false witness against people and punish them for stuff they haven't done so they're talking about the the, um, the slavery reparations mm -hmm. who are they they're going to punish people who've never done that mm -hmm. for something that never happened to them so that they can get up in the world and may, you know, be better off socioeconomically too. And I'm like, well, actually, if I love them, I want them to be better off socioeconomically, and I do. Mm -hmm. But you don't take steel from someone else mm -hmm. to give to someone else to be, because that's what got us in the trouble to start with. Yeah. You st the, the black American lives were, you know, black African lives were stolen. Yeah. So two wrongs do not make a right. So what do you do? Uh, I was thinking like when I retire, I go, I, I go, I want to go to the inner cities and do like a literacy program mm. or a job skills program to help people who just free to help them because that's the stuff that helps them because it, it does bother me that they're they're poor. Mm -hmm. um, I was in uh, Roanoke driving down the road and there was this guy, a uh, white guy though, but he looked like hell. Mm -hmm. He looked like just a wild man and no teeth and, you know, drunk. I thought, how can this guy escape from this? I go, he can't escape. He needs help escaping. So, there's ways to do it. Again, stealing from someone else to give someone else doesn't help at and, all. And that's very uh, like the good Samaritan of you see the man on the side and there's he he's he's stuck. Mm -hmm. And to be a functionalist is to be someone who stays. I will take you to the end and I'll pay for your care and I'll get you back into right functioning with society. And biblically, I mean, it's it's there throughout the whole thing. If someone is hurting, you know, if they need a, a shoe, give them shoes, give them cloak, you know, you have that too. And that's the thing. So it's like if it come a, an off ramp and there's a guy, you know, a girl, you know, you know, requesting funds or something like that. I, I, I don't always give them money, but I'll buy them food. I get, if I have extra food, I give them that too. Just because I go, I could be there too easily. And, I, and um, they're my brother and sister who are hurting too. So. Yeah. Well, Dr. Knox, I really feel like this is going to be a great episode for people to listen to. I think that this is um, much needed. And I, I know that people walk out of our class and we, we talk about the track guys all the time and how much they got out of our last semester. And um, I'm really glad that you got the opportunity to sit down. Thank you so much for coming in on the spring break. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> and uh, just very glad that we got this ability to go on the record discussion. Yeah, well, I appreciate you and your position with me too. So you did a good job. I also really applaud you for your um, striving for uh, intellectual improvement, knowledge. You know, knowledge improvement is good because most people like going to school. They um, they go. What's the bare minimum I need to graduate? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what a waste of opportunity. Yeah. I go. I mean, you, you know, God's giving you these these classes to take, and it's like you you want to just like suck the the knowledge and power dry from these things and like use them. So, and one of my favorite things in life is using knowledge and skills and you know information that I got from earlier classes, and that's because you know again uh, to well again to be in college you're you know of the five percent in the world ninety five percent of the rest of the people in the, in the world do not have a, a degree yeah so you're fortunate to be here too and so to take advantage of it too so that's good so but thank you again yeah appreciate it and i would also like to thank all of our listeners uh, i know that we are growing quickly and i'm so thankful that uh, there are people who would want to sit down and listen to a discussion like this i always hope that it's edifying and encouraging that uh, the pursuit of knowledge is at least alive in a couple sparks and amongst the next generation. So uh, my name is Quinn Weinzaffel and you're listening to Scholarish. Uh, thank you all and have a great week.